Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, one thing that struck me again and again over the past few weeks is that the range of outcomes has never been wider as everyone tries to be an armchair epidemiologist and the epidemiologists themselves throw up their arms and say, we have no idea. And to get a sense, though, of what may be expected in markets based on different outcomes, that seems to be the increasing focus. Joining us right now, David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, which has $2 trillion of assets under management. David, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start there. The wide range of outcomes. Can you give us your, your sort of optimistic case and your pessimistic case based on, on what we're seeing right now in the data? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think the first thing is to recognize that in the baseline, um, this disease is not going away. Uh, we have succeeded in stabilizing it. We have flattened the curve, but it's really just a plateau more than a curve. Uh, and so we're running at about you know, 25,000 cases a day uh, running at between you know, 1,500 and 2,000 more uh, fatalities a day, and it'll probably keep doing that um, under a base case. Now, a good outcome would be um, a better treatment. Um, we have seen some treatment options. One or two um, companies, certainly we've one, one approved for emergency use, but there are other treatments out there, and doctors are getting better in terms of protocols. If you can push that mortality rate down, then maybe people feel a little bit more comfortable about getting back to normal, and I think you may see that um, later on this year. Um, on the other hand, a, you know, a more negative outcome is one in which mortalities just refuse to go down significantly and the vaccine's delayed. So you've got to, you know, we're talking about, you know, maybe they'll get a vaccine by the end of the year, maybe it'll be distributed by the first quarter, but that's a lot, there's a lot of ifs, a lot of things have to go right there. And if we don't have a vaccine until late in 2021 and we can't and don't push down mortalities, then it's very hard for everybody to get back to normal. And so this could be, you know, this could be a U-shaped recession rather than a V-shaped recession. So, uh, David, in your scenarios, I mean, do you factor into fact that there might be a second wave, a third wave? We're hearing from a lot of scientists that that is not only possible, but probably likely. Well, the problem is the first wave has to crest. I'm I'm actually a little bit mystified by all this talk about a second wave. I've seen no, I've seen evidence in New York City, yes, that, that after a horrific two months, the number of fatalities has gone down. Uh, but it looks to me like the number of new cases has not really gone down by much nationally, um, and we're relaxing, we're relaxing social distancing. And if that happens, I suspect that the caseload really won't come down that much. So it's not so much about a second wave; we just never got rid of the first one. I mean, if, if the first, if you say that, you know, if people say that the first wave is done, but we're still running at over a thousand people dying every day, 
then that's you know three hundred sixty-five thousand people a year. Um, it's you know, you know, and and that's you know, if it's a thousand people a day. So um, I do think there could be. I think we could continue to see um, a heavy caseload because we think that only about two percent of the American population right now is infected. Um, that means a vast majority of people have not been infected and are vulnerable to infection. So you know, it's, to me, it's not a matter of a second wave. It's a matter of can we get the first wave to actually crest and come down. And this is the question that epidemiologists and, and, and scientists of all types are trying to figure out, and they themselves can't really understand necessarily the path here. From an investment strategy perspective, how are you advising clients at a time of such huge differentials with respect to the virology here? Well, I, th- I think the first thing to recognize is the markets come back a long way. I mean, we were down 34% peak to trough. And given the size of the recession, that's, you know, that's not an unreasonable market reaction. Um, but we're now only down about 15%. So I, I think that there is- we are vulnerable to some correction here. I think in the long run, you know, we will get a vaccine. We will get out of this. And I do think that in the long run, U.S. stocks may do okay. Uh, but I think that people need to be are prepared for a uh, a second correction, a second wave down in the market as people's more optimistic views on this virus sort of petering out go away. So I think that's the first thing. And and beyond that, I think you've got to figure out you know what's going to weather this recession well and what's going to thrive in the rebound. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is international stocks are still getting cheaper and cheaper relative to U.S. stocks. And the one region of the world that has done well in getting past this is East Asia. And I do think that people ought to take advantage of that and make sure they've got enough allocation to countries like um, you know, Korea, Taiwan, uh, Australia, and, and, and so forth in, in, this, uh, in this pandemic. So, David, are you one of those folks that is concerned that this, the, the financial markets, particularly the risk on markets, are being artificially supported by what has been in a very, very aggressive Federal Reserve and central banks globally? Uh, well, I think that has been a problem for a long time. I, I can't fault the central banks right now. There is nothing else to do but to, to throw money at this problem and to try and uh, maintain liquidity. So I have no problem with the policy right now. I do think that it requires a level of real discipline when the economy does come back to remove that support, even if it hurts the economy a bit, because there is a danger at the end of all this that all this liquidity, if we don't mop it up again, um, it could cause inflation and higher interest rates down the road, and we want to avoid that. Uh, but for the moment, yes, I do think the market's been supported by that, but I wouldn't say that that's, uh, that makes it a wrong policy. Just real quick here, David, I'm wondering, is there any asset class you really like right now? Well, I do like um, emerging market equities for, for the long run. I think that's important. And then the other thing is um, just look at those companies, things like technology, um, utilities, healthcare, those sectors that can weather a long pandemic recession. I, I think they're probably underappreciated relative to some of those more cyclical bounce back sectors, which may be still doing too well, given that I do think this is going to be in most likely a U-shaped rather than a V-shaped recession. Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us your, your global perspective. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by Shonali Basak. Uh, she sat down earlier today with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Peter Orzag, who's head of Lazard's financial advisory practice and a former Obama administration budget chief to talk about the potential for a cascade of bankruptcies resulting from the pandemic. Let's listen in. 
Well, look, if the if uh, unemployment remains elevated for an extended period of time, and especially if there is not additional rounds of government stimulus, we are going we are at some significant risk of cascading bankruptcies where the bankruptcy where a bankruptcy at, a, at one firm then infects another firm. Uh, and then that infects a third firm and so on and so forth. And that can do a lot of damage to the economy. That was uh, Peter Orzak, head of Lazard's financial advisory practice. Shanali Basak, Bloomberg Wall Street correspondent, joins us now. So, Shanali, I mean, there is really a risk here. We're starting to see more and more stories crossing the tape here. So as you talk to your contacts, including uh, Mr. Orzak, I mean, I guess they're just kind of preparing for what is probably uh, a lot more to come. That's for sure. And what uh, Peter had said this morning was that he could see a potential cascade of bankruptcies where issues with one company can lead to an issue with another company to another company. He's also has written earlier this year that supply chains are being very heavily impacted by this coronavirus, which could lead to a big consolidation of these supply chains. And I, I see a lot of banks right now dealing with supply chain financing and issues that are interconnected with these firms. And so it, these are not just standalone issues is what I'm saying. And this idea of cascading bankruptcies is quite scary. Well, and I want to go a little bit further just uh, in terms of what we've already seen. Hertz, for example, is teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. It got a stay from some of its creditors. But there's a concern that, for example, it will have to liquidate some of its inventories of cars in order to make good on its debt. That's leading to concerns about the valuations of cars, which goes to dealers. I mean, has anyone talked about the, uh, the sort of interconnected nature in terms of a tipping point into some some sort of uh, critical moment. Is anyone talking about what that would look like? So the thing that's hard about this critical moment, and Lisa, I'm really glad you brought up the value of cars and the value of homes and the value of all the things that are underlying in the economy that nobody wants to talk about yet. And the thing is, a lot of people don't expect that the economy will reopen in full. They think it'll take a long time. And somebody like Orzag actually thinks that there will be intermittent closures continuing from now, and therefore much more stimulus needed in further rounds. So that idea of value of the things underlying our economy, nobody knows, but people are a little too exhausted with the current crisis to deal with what that might look like. So it's interesting, Shanali, when you talk to uh, Peter Orzag uh, from Lazard, are they talking about ramping up uh, some of their staffing and some of their restructuring departments, uh, advisory departments? Well, it's funny that you mentioned advisory because Lazard is also one of the biggest merger advisors in the world and mergers are virtually nil. There's not a lot able to happen right now. Uh, The idea of hiring bankers for Lazard and a lot of its peers is a really tough one, but restructuring really is a place that's propped up right now and a place that they are seeing activity, but it's not enough activity to really offset the places that even a place like Lazard is losing revenue, which is those large scale deals. One thing that Peter Orzag was talking about was additional stimulus, and I'm wondering where and how they would like to see this deployed, given the fact that we've already seen a tremendous amount poured in through the PPP, through checks given uh, to people around the country. So speaking of checks, uh, there are some really great graphics that we've had uh, come out through Bloomberg News to show exactly where all of the money is going. For this next wave of stimulus, Orzag in particular had mentioned that state and local governments are going to be a really important place to direct a lot of this 
this aid that has been a point of contention, as we know. Uh, we all remember what Mitch McConnell said, even if the prospect of different uh, local governments going bankrupt, that's something a lot of these restructuring artists really deal with as well. Uh, but paychecks into the hands of people faster seems to be the consensus, because if you don't have people spending in the economy, then you don't have an economy. Remember yesterday, Lisa, we had Jim Milstein tell us that he was worried that people will turn around and realize the investor class was saved first by all of the Federal Reserve's uh, actions to save credit markets and that the investor class later may have to pay for it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time. Shanali Basak is a Bloomberg Wall Street correspondent. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. This has been one theme of really steady yields. You see this both on the treasury side as well as the corporate debt side as a growing number of investors factor in Fed stimulus uh, and, and, and bond purchases. And weighing in on that as somebody who has an intimate knowledge of the Federal Reserve, and that would be Eric Stein. And I'm really glad that we have him, co-director of Global Income at Eaton Vance Management, because I want to put into perspective the financing plans that the U.S. Treasury Department has Eric Stein, we are experiencing a $3 trillion expected issuance in the second quarter by the U.S. Treasury Department. How much will this cause yields to go up given the dynamic that we're seeing in markets right now? Lot, uh, you know, first off, thanks certainly for having me on. You know, three trillion—it it is a huge number. It only sounds huge; it is huge. But um, you know, the Fed has you know, basically, to me, kind of underwritten you know market functioning in the U.S. Treasury market, and also underwritten a lot of supply. And so, given that the Fed's you know has rates now effectively at zero, just a touch above zero, uh, a lot of programs you're mentioning some in the credit market, quantitative easing, so buying treasuries, uh, and that helps absorb that supply. In addition, and despite the fact we've seen you know markets rally really over the past you know five six weeks or so, uh, there still is a lot of uncertainty out there in the world and fear and whatnot, and that also helps to keep keep Treasury yields low. So it's not only the Fed, but the Fed certainly has a very big part in in you know the stability, as you mentioned before, of U.S. Treasury yields. So Eric, you mentioned you know we're kind of at that zero bound uh, with interest rates. I'm looking at the ten year here, trading at zero point six six percent. So looking at something like the ten year. Do you think the Fed has any appetite for that part of the curve to be at or below 0%? Uh, no, so it's, it's interesting. It's a great question. You know that that would be a negative or really inverted yield curve. So you know it's a big debate that, that I have my colleagues at Eaton Vance Management. Does the shape of the yield curve matter? Personally, I'm squarely in the camp that that yield curve uh, shape does matter. It's a market signal. Uh, yes, it can be uh, manipulated by the Fed or others, but it is a market signal. And so I think having an inverted yield curve, uh, which if short end rates were a touch above zero and the ten year was negative, uh, there'd be issues with the banking sector. I think there's issues from a market confidence perspective and whatnot. So I think the Fed likes very low treasury yields, but they also like a positively sloped yield curve. 
How concerned are you about a lack of liquidity in the Treasury market? I'm hearing that it's actually starting to worsen a little bit as the Federal Reserve has uh, net purchases that exceed issuance so far. Uh, you know, how big of an issue is that? So, I mean, it depends to me what type of, of, you know, less liquidity are you seeing? You know, you've heard about for years, let's say, in Japan in the JGB market where there's certain JGBs that don't trade in a particular day because the, the BOJ owns such a large uh, portion of those. So I don't, I don't think we're, we're not seeing that in the U.S. Uh, with the Treasury market and the Fed. Uh, and then, you know, to me, we're certainly not back to what we were in mid-March when, uh, you know, the Treasury market, the on-the-run, off-the-run spreads or the Treasury repo market, really, the, you know, not only the backbone of, of the fixed income market, but I'd say the backbone of global financial markets is the U.S. Treasury and, and the Treasury repo market. That effectively wasn't functioning in mid-March. It's a lot better today. So certainly if you're active in one particular uh, security and you're trying to trade that, uh, you, know, um, you know, having the Fed purchase uh, more than, than the issuance supply can cause some issues, but I think we're far away from where we were in the middle of March. So Eric, where are you and the, the good folks at Eaton Vance kind of doing your work right now? Where are you seeing some value, some opportunities? Yeah, so look, I, I think of you know Eaton Vance Management on the fixed income side. We're, we're very much a, a you know a credit a credit shop, whether it's municipal credit, corporate credit, sovereign credit, securitized credit. And you know, on one hand, uh, you know, doing credit investing is challenging right now, given you know we don't know you know the economy is obviously quite weak now. There likely should be some opening up and some recovery, but the trajectory of that is very uncertain. The you know the length of, of how long, uh, whether or not we get a second wave of coronavirus and need to shut things down again, a lot of uncertainty, and so. Um, you know, I think that makes it challenging. At the same time, you have Fed, you know, Fed backstop and, and Fed support, um, which I think is helpful to the credit market. So I think, you know, certainly parts of the of the bank loan market and the high yield market that were, you know, selling off a lot, you know, high you know, loan somewhat in February and, and all those asset classes in, into the kind of middle or end of March, uh, they certainly rebound a lot. But I think in the corporate credit markets, uh, you still you see some value, um, you know, still certainly there in, in loans, high yield, um, you know, emerging markets markets that we focus on uh, on the global income team that, that I co-run um, value there, but obviously emerging markets also have their own set of, of challenges, um, you know, given given the health outcomes in some of these countries. But even I think some of the worst fears from a couple of weeks ago, even in emerging markets, are a little less concerning than they were, but, but there's still going to be challenges for sure. We're speaking with Eric Stein, co-director of Global Income at Eaton Vance. And previously, you worked on the markets desk of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which was very much in focus. They are expected to start buying ETFs that own credit in the next few days and then follow that up with their program to actually buy uh, initial issuance of corporate debt. Do you think the market's gotten ahead of itself in terms of its expectations for Fed purchases, given that it'll just be a fraction of the overall market? You know, look, look, I think I think the Fed is is the signaling effect is quite powerful, um, and so certainly the details of the programs you know matter. It's something that we're we're discussing at Eaton Vance, and you know constantly getting questions. You know, when are the details going to be out, and when's the Fed going to announce this? You have to understand it, it takes the Fed some time to announce a lot of their programs, just given the nature of that institution, particularly new programs. Programs they're dusting off from 08 are a little bit easier. But but to me, the most important thing is that the Fed has shown that the programs will adapt; they will change. Uh, typically, more 
multiple times. And so, you know, the, the Fed's goal is not to, you know, get asset markets back to where they were per, before the coronavirus, but their goal is to keep credit flowing in the economy. And so to the extent that, you know, if markets were to reverse significantly from here, to me, the Fed would, would very much adjust uh, the programs and, and get markets continuing to function. So, you know, while we might not see further gains when the Fed actually does some of these purchases, because I would agree a fair about uh, a large amount is already priced in, um, you know, I, th- I think sometimes investors need to separate both the signal from the actual purchases. And what we've seen really in central banking, not only the Fed, but think about the ECB, um, you know, back to the last crisis, uh, a lot of times, if anything, words can be more powerful than the actual actions, assuming that the market thinks that the central banks, in this case, the Fed, uh, are credible with those words. Eric, earlier this morning, uh, Lisa and I were talking about um, bankruptcies and the number that's starting to grow and are we going to see a you know kind of a wave a cascading wave of bankruptcies out there what do you what's your sense of credit quality out there as you kind of look across your portfolio where are some of the areas of concern yeah look look i I certainly think you know Bankruptcies are going to go up from from you know they were very low levels you know for the most part in, in most corporate sectors you know since the financial crisis of, of you know 07, 08, 09, you know other than some of the uh, challenges in the let's say the energy sector in, in fifteen and, and sixteen um, you know and obviously idiosyncratic bankruptcies here and there so so I think that uh, you know they're for sure going to go up um, you know t- to me the question is you know, how long does that last and also does it become more socially acceptable for more and more entities to default. I think if that were the case, that would be, um, you know, problematic, um, you know, for credit markets and for the economy writ large. If it's just the sectors that are, mo- you know, either had their issues kind of coming in uh, to the coronavirus shock, such as the energy sector, for sure it's been exacerbated by the uh, con- no one traveling, um, or sectors like, you know, airlines or, or rental cars or whatnot, where it's, uh, you know, those are massively affected uh, due to you know, social distancing and, and quarantine that we're seeing for sure, you know, those are, there's going to be bankruptcies. There's going to be credit events in, in those, in those sectors. So uh, I, I think we're going to see it. And, you know, if you go back in history, actually there are years, sometimes you have better returns in credit markets in years when there are some bankruptcies, if assuming it's priced into the market, even then, then, you know, years where there, where there aren't bankruptcies, but for sure, um, you know, it's, it's going to be something to focus on. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Eric Stein, co-director of Global Fixed Income at Eat Vance. They have about $518 billion under management. Rental car company Hertz entering into some agreements with some of the lenders to try to buy some more time to stave off bankruptcy. To get the latest, uh, we welcome Eliza Ronalds-Hannon. She's a high-yield and distressed credit reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, Eliza, thanks so much for joining us. Give us the latest here on Hertz. How close is this company to filing for bankruptcy? Well, it has negotiated just a two-and-a-half-week forbearance. So, I mean, it's very close. There's always sort of that Hail Mary that they'll be able to, that any given company will be able to strike a deal with creditors at the last minute to avoid Chapter 11. But, you know, Hertz is very much already drawing up the documents, was prepared to file last night if it did not get um, the forbearance from creditors. But now it has two and a half more weeks during which lenders have agreed not to foreclose on its assets, not to demand a liquidation of an enormous fleet of cars, for instance. But I think that it's still likely that this time will be used to hash out an agreement that will take place in bankruptcy, because at this point, it's just really tough to imagine a company with this complex of a capital structure unwinding everything outside of court. 
Aleza, can we take a step back and talk about mm-hmm. the business model of the rental car companies right now? It's not just Hertz. Avis has also come under pressure, but Hertz is under more given their finances heading into this. About two-thirds of the business uh, stems from air travel. You fly somewhere, you rent a car to get around. And I'm wondering, how much was this really an issue of the pandemic? And how much is this a Hertz-specific issue of them adding too much debt at a time of uncertainty given Uber and lift and just the changing backdrop there. Right. It's a little bit of both, but I think this is really one of the first companies that we've seen that might file bankruptcy almost entirely because of the COVID pandemic fallout. I mean, Hertz has been levered up and somewhat struggling for a couple of years. I mean, it's been sort of on people's watch list, but its debt has traded at par. It has not been a distressed company in that sense. Um, and it's, brought in a lot of revenue, despite all of its debt, it's been able to stay afloat. So unlike some of the companies we've seen go bankrupt in the past month or so, which really were fully distressed before COVID and this really put them over the edge, Hertz would represent one of the first um, or really the first company to end up in bankruptcy pretty, pretty explicitly because of the kind of just global shutdown that the that the COVID pandemic has caused. Like you said, you know, it relies a whole lot on travel. And so it's one of a whole number of companies in the travel sector or adjacent to the travel sector that we're now seeing come under real hardship. So Eliza, has Hertz and some of the other rental companies, have they received a fiscal stimulus from the federal government or they, are they expecting it? Um, were they one of those industries that did benefit a little bit? That's a good question. They have not received any any sort of stimulus or bailout yet. Um, there are, they've been in communication with the Treasury Department. We really don't know too many details on that, but I think like any other company, they're very hopeful uh, that any day now there could be some additional uh, bailout or rescue financing that they would uh, that they would qualify for. But no, they have not gotten any any sort of that assistance yet, and so that's kind of been make or break. Eliza, there's a question as a growing number of companies file for bankruptcy. How much has already been priced into debt markets? In other words, are we seeing creditors uh, getting crammed down and forced to swallow bigger losses than they were expected? Or are they already budgeting for this? That's a great question. Uh, It really depends on the company. So any of the companies that have already been distressed before the crisis, uh, it, it has been priced in and you see some really sophisticated hedge fund um, owners of the debt and lenders. So they're, they've bought in low and they actually are poised to make a lot of money in a restructuring, especially if they end up with some equity control. Um, But in a situation like Hertz, this is where you're going to see a lot of people getting hurt because by the time that they would have wanted to sell out things, things went bad so fast in terms of the, like enhanced uh, pressure that that travel-related companies have come under. So it happened way too fast for anyone to get out at a reasonable level, and they will take a really big hit. And it and hurts, like, like some of the retailers that we've seen file for bankruptcy recently, the biggest problem is that they, this fleet of collateral, they have their, their assets are collateral on their debt, and for retailers that is inventory, apparel, uh, you know, things like that. And for Hertz, it's it's its huge fleet of cars. And the scariest part is that they can't liquidate those assets to repay creditors during this pandemic shutdown. So 
one of the reasons, you know, one of the priorities for Hertz right now is trying to hold off on having to sell all its used car fleet during a period where, you know, the cars would fetch really low fire sale prices um, and not even repay what it backs. That's a big concern uh, for a lot of people. Eliza Ronald Hannon, thank you so much for being with us. Eliza Ronald Hannon, high yield and distressed credit reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.